Hello, and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Reports podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Emma, and I'd like to welcome our guest for today's episode, Elma Lynn's Canefield. Today, we will be discussing how performance artists can unlock their potential on stage and off. Let's get into today's conversation. I would like you to, if you could, introduce yourself a bit. So you uh, were a performer yourself. Can you tell me a little bit about how uh, how you got into performing and a little bit about your story and the progression to psychotherapy? Um, well, as a child, I wanted to be an opera singer. And uh, I attended the Neighborhood Playhouse uh, where I had a, I was performing in the village actually. And I had a pretty traumatic experience. I was on stage thinking, oh, do I look okay? Will they like me? Will I hit that note? Uh, um, Am I dressed well enough? And I heard the opening chords and I opened my mouth and nothing came out. Eek is right. (laughs) Um, And nothing would come out. So I left the stage. And I left the profession. Um, And that was in New York. And I went back to St. Louis. Because nobody could help me in New York. I went to doctors. I went to therapists. Nobody could understand what was going on with me. And I stayed in New York, I mean, in St. Louis, excuse me, until I was uh, 40. And I went to school to get a degree in social work. Uh, Not in, I mean, no just so I'd have a mental health degree, uh, I was working with, in part, uh, the performing arts community in St. Louis. And uh, I closed my practice in St. Louis when uh, I was 40. People thought I was stark raving mad, went to New York. (laughs) to treat performing artists. And I thought, that's the Mecca. Didn't everyone? And Emma, no one had a practice exclusive for the mental health and well-being of performing artists. So my practice thrived. And then uh, I think three years later, the uh, position became available at Juilliard 
for nine hours for therapists. And there were lots of applications, but because my internship in St. Louis uh, was at Washington University um, at their counseling center, and because my practice was exclusive, I think this is why I got the gig. Um, I got the position. And it was basically an idea because there was no room, no telephone. Uh, it, it was an idea. So all night long, the students were calling me and my husband would jump. <laughs> and that was not sustainable. I was seeing too many people with... Uh, too many really difficult, difficult problems and challenges. So I went to the president and I said, you could do this, you could do that. Or do you want to start an on-campus counseling services with unlimited hours, with strict confidentiality, and, a couple of, and allow me to hire a couple more people? And he said, well, do you want to? I said, sure. Now, I had no administrative knowledge, but he knew a good idea. And it was a good idea. The counseling services at Juilliard is thriving. I think it sees more than, oh, I don't know what percentage of the students. But... Um, I had that opportunity. I stayed about 10 or 12 years until my private practice was just too big. And I accomplished what I wanted to. Um, so from a trauma of having nobody who could help me, I had to figure it out which I did, and it gave me really such a fabulous life's calling, if you will. I mean, I feel like I'm so fortunate to have the career I have, so blessed. And basically what my book is about is my career and what I have learned from working with these hundreds and hundreds of actors and dancers and singers and musicians is uh, how, to, how to find your performance potential, which is another way of saying good mental health and the ability to function on stage and off. Um, and what I learned on this journey is that I call it Hamlet's Mirror, my book Hamlet's Mirror, because Hamlet said, um, it is the artists after all who hold the mirror up to life reflecting us all, and indeed that's true. They teach all of us. 
that was a long-winded answer, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was really interesting. Um, absolutely. I, I think that's really interesting what you the comment that you mentioned about Hamlet, of course, and your story um uh, is really interesting that that moment, that traumatic moment that led you down this path. Um it's easy to think that you might how you might think back on that um, uh, a lot because in some sense that's the trauma that led you to the career that you're so happy with, and it's very easy to see that you would be thrilled because you really did in a sense you pioneered this, um, I guess niche right, um, and so it must have been overwhelming though because you were the only one for some time right, uh, and having all those clients, um, but. So I guess that that leads me to the next question, which is I'm really curious to get a sense of um, some of the themes um, uh, that performers would come to you with, some of any of recurring themes about performance or their mental health in general. Um, were there things that you had seen that um, patterns within performers that you could maybe have identified in yourself as well? Um. Yes and no. Uh, I'd say yes and no because people ask me, are performers different? And I do believe they are because many, and I can't quote a percentage because I haven't. I don't know how to. There's so many performers in the world and I haven't done that research. Many, and I hesitate to say most, know what they want to do at such an early age, which can skew psychosocial development. And that is not true for all of us. I mean, did you know what you wanted to do and who you wanted to be at maybe four? Yeah, most of us don't. Yeah. So that creates a big difference. But in terms of what they come to talk to me about, relationships, finances, uh, self-esteem, um, that's all the same. And of course I battled those in my silent voice and being an artist you have to know who you are to get up on that stage and be in the moment. Mm -hmm. yeah. And be a person. I mean, the more we can be in the moment now or on the stage, uh, it, the better we can communicate, attach, 
be authentic, care, give, take. I think that's the name of the game. And many performers come into the office or on Zoom, I call it the office, um, worrying about mistakes. I call it outlook thinking um, or outcome thinking. Or oh, am I going to make the same mistake? Or, or what if, what if this happens? Mm -hmm. That's a that's in your head. That's imagination. Or last time I missed this note. Okay. What are you gonna do about it now? Mm -hmm. Mistake is a learning. Let's learn from it. Just to prepare more. Just to do finger exercises. What are you gonna do about it now? Can you go back to last Thursday's concert? Not a do-over. So if a, uh, a lawyer, let's say, messed up something in court, okay, what are you going to learn from it? Yeah, absolutely. The... Being in the present moment, um, it's interesting that how people overlook that and how difficult it can be. I'm imagining I have very little experience on a stage, but I do have some. And I'm imagining the challenges of being in the present moment, I would think, would be exacerbated when you're on stage. It's even difficult to be in the present moment when there's, you know, much less going on and much less at stake. Um, but at the same time, I think that along with knowing who you are. I think that's really inspiring and and not only for performers, but for all of us, right? I think so much would change if we could figure out who we are and, and try to be present in whichever situation we're in and whichever relationship that we're in. It's interesting. At the same time, though, I'm thinking that actually now being on the stage might naturally bring that out, right? Because it's 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 here and now and there's no... Every moment, right, is about creating the scene or creating the the uh, the environment that's going on. So I think that's a really interesting element, um, yeah, of of the stage fright, also, right. And um, I'm wondering now. I'm kind of going back a little bit, but I'm wondering about that event that you experienced, um, or you could not. You found that your voice was you were unable to express yourself at the time. And I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts about what might have been going on? I mean, obviously, maybe you were you were probably had stage fright. Um, but have you experienced? Have you talked to people who have had that experience afterwards, or have you had thoughts about that that you think um, might be interesting for people to hear about my experience? Yeah. Um, well, I wasn't. I didn't know myself. I would, my thoughts were, will they like me? I can't make somebody like me. Do I look okay? I look the way I look. Mm -hmm. um, what were some of my, will I hit that note? Anticipating failure. I wasn't in the moment. 
I, I, I was there to make music. I was there to enjoy the gift I was given and share it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like there's an element of also trust in yourself, right? That you need to trust yourself and you can't really trust yourself if you don't know yourself, right? Right. Yeah. That's really, yeah, that's really. Trust self. I am enough. Mm -hmm. Or wanting perfection. Am I perfect? <laughs> What's perfect? What is perfect? People say, I've got to get this perfect. According to who? What is perfect? Uh, I mean, Beethoven was deaf when he wrote, uh, well, I know the ninth symphony. I think his eighth too, but I'm not certain. How fearless. I mean, I think we should all do things. <laughs> Test. Do something. Experiment. And I'm just thinking, I'm just spinning now. To enable ourselves to just ad lib our lives on stage and off. Mm -hmm. I just love to invent like that. Yeah. That makes me think of Gestalt therapy because there oh, are. Oh, I love Gestalt. Of course, of course you do. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that because what you just said made me exactly think about that. And I've had some experience uh, with Gestalt. I'm very interested in becoming a psychotherapist. Um, and so that that element of it always really interested me. Um, you know, the 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 chairs talking and the the chair chair exercises and any other things, right? Um yeah, so I can see that would be it's yeah, that makes me think of ad libbing during, you know, daily life and that, that's what we do. Yeah. When we're present and trusting ourselves, we ad lib. Yeah, absolutely. When we're not trusting ourselves, we, now what should I say? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How should I be? Yeah, we're playing a role. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and in some sense, you you have to be liberated from that role and uh, find your own, right? Yeah. And have you gotten into the book where there's the drama trauma triangle? Oh, is that the Cartman drama triangle? I think I think I know. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's not. I I kind of change it, but mm -hmm. Steve Cartman mm -hmm. did do something like that. I studied with him long ago. Um, I changed that triangle a little bit. Have you gotten to that? No, I haven't. You write that down. The drama trauma triangle, you say? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can you tell us about that? Well, when we're not our authentic selves, we run around this triangle. And at the apex is three. 
um, there's the villain, the hero, and the victim. And we all have a favored position. Mm -hmm. And that's our default position. And we get stuck on that position. And um, we act it out, act it out, act it out. They're archetypes. And then when we're budged from that position, we go to either one of the others. And all, all lifelong, we run around these positions. And they have to be interrupted to ad-lib our lives. And once we realize what our position is, um, we can do the work to stop behaving like that. It's hard because it's patterned. Patterns are hard to break. But once we're aware of that and conscious of that and say, how's this serving me? Is it helping me? And we want to become healthy and reach potential. That's choice. Talk a lot about choice in the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, speaking of patterns, um, you've identified four performing profiles. Could yeah. you tell us a little bit about those archetypes? Well, I don't call them archetypes. I call them real personality patterns, which I identified over my four decades of work. Um, two are just really very uh, toxic. Mm. The energy behind uh, the foundation of them. I call it dissonant energy. Dissonant energy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it's very negative. It's very uh, it's either fear or anger. Mm -hmm. And when those are your primary feeling um, sources, fight or flight choices. That can make people very unhappy and their behaviors very um, toxic to them and other people. So those are the first two personality uh, profiles that I identified. The first one is the problem-ridden, and the second one is the pugnacious. And fear underlines the first one, and anger the second. Um, 
and the problem-ridden personality clings like a lifeline to their way of thinking and feeling. And it takes a very astute clinician to shake or intervene on those thinking patterns and feeling patterns. And one of the thinking patterns is this outcome thinking and impossibility thinking. There's no daylight. Mm -hmm. And the other feeling patterns is that feelings are facts. My feelings define reality. And the other one is I can make you feel and you can make me feel. You can make me feel like a horrible person. I can make you feel wonderful. Or you can make me feel happy. That's not real. Mm. I'm in charge of my emotional system. You are in charge of yours. And I think I write in the book, we go to school to learn to think. We do not go to school to learn about feelings. And that's sorely missing in our educational system. You're in Canada, aren't you? Yes. Was that any part of your learning? No. 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 And I, I completely agree with you that that is missing uh, to many people's dismay. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's one of my favorite parts of the book. Mm -hmm. the, the, the section on feelings. Um, I've done a lot of work with people on feelings, what they are, because we're not taught. A lot of people are taught to keep their feelings to themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. And men are taught not to show any negative feelings except anger is okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I would, I would say perhaps even, even more so here. I mean, I've been to the States a couple of times and I've, I've often heard it remarked that Canadians are less emotionally expressive than, than Americans. And I certainly uh, saw that when I was there, but I think generally, uh, yeah, the, the emotional aspect that's missing from our education is uh, you can, you must be able to see that, you know, in the therapy room, right? How it's the emotional illiteracy that many people yeah. have, right? Yeah, they don't even. I love that phrase, emotional illiteracy. Yeah. I borrow that. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's not mine, but <laughs> yes, I, I like that phrase too. Uh, very fitting. Um, and I wish we had more time, but I we, we should probably, uh, I should probably head over to my last question. So um, I, I was wondering if you could tell us um, uh, briefly about what what is your message to performers to perhaps um, move them more towards the promising performer or the potential realized performer so uh what can what can performers do who might be listening to realize their goals on the stage 
Well, this is for everybody on stage and off. Um, you can read my book. I'm really proud of the work because I've learned. I, I don't. I don't feel like it's my book. It, it's it, it's what I've learned. Um, you can get to know yourselves and trust yourselves and believe in your choices. Learn how to make choices. There's five ways and that's in the book. And um, take responsibility for your lives. It's a very freeing thing. I mean, it's easy to blame. Uh, it's easy to say, oh, that damn director or that damn judge or whatever. What's my role in it? I don't mean on stage. What's my part? And once we learn that it takes two to tango, and it's not scary to say, I had a part in this. What is it? Let me learn so I can do things differently, say something different. Your whole inner world changes. And that when you change, I have a mantra in the book and I kind of dance it. When you change what you're thinking, you will change what you're doing. And if I ask one thing of your listeners, it's to get on your feet now and say that with me. If you change what you're thinking, you will change what you're doing. Will you say that one more time with me? If you change what you're thinking, you will change what you're doing and you'll feel better. And you have more chance of reaching your performance potential no matter what you do. Thank you. I, I hope that addresses your question, Emma. Absolutely. It's it went beyond my question in a really wonderful way. Uh, so it's not just for performers, it's for all of us. Or yeah. in some sense, we are all performing one role or another. And um, I guess we we have a much better chance at fulfilling our potential in those roles when we're present and trusting ourselves and changing the way we're thinking. Um, so thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation and reading your book. And I think uh, our listeners will really enjoy this conversation. It's very inspiring. Um, so thank you so much, Elma. And I hope I wish you all the best. You've reached the end of this episode with the Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast. Thanks for joining us. Connect with us at trauma.blog.yorku.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. See you at the next episode.